Bokertov. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Aliyah Day. It is a beautiful day in the neighborhood. I pray that everybody is doing well and being blessed and uh, staying healthy in this climate of, of uh, pandemic. So, Baruch Hashem. Remember, everybody, to take your vitamins, vitamin D3, vitamin C, vitamin E. That seems to be the uh, combination there. There's all kinds of other supplements I suppose you can take. Wash your hands and all those kinds of things. And uh, if you're sick, stay home. You know, all that kind of stuff. But to avoid the plague, Baruch Hashem. And may Hashem uh, bring health and wholeness to our uh, nation and to uh, relieve us of every sickness and disease. Amen. So glad you are here. Prayerfully, the uh, live stream uh, teachings like this will not be the order of a day for a while. So, you know, the NBA has canceled their games and... Uh, I don't know. Everything's canceled, it seems like, these days. So hopefully uh, we'll, we won't have to cancel uh, in-person shul. But if that becomes necessary for some reason, we already have the uh, apparatus in place to make that happen. So Bezrat Hashem won't happen. Everybody stock up on toilet paper. That seems to be the most important thing you can get to stop the uh, spread of a pandemic is to <laughs> stock. I've been seeing that on on. On the news and online, people stock. I'm not really sure what the toilet paper thing is all about, but you want to be sure and have enough. So be sure and do that. We're stocking up on firearms and ammunition so that we can acquire the toilet paper from people who have stocked it up. I'm, I'm half kidding. I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> it's being silly. But seriously, uh, be careful out there. Take the uh, common sense precautions and everybody stay healthy. Baruch Hashem. From wherever you are, across the fruited plain, and across the known world. Baruch Hashem. So welcome, Dominique. Glad you're here. From Kansas City. Just a, a shout out to a couple people here. Yara, welcome. Glad you're here. Sam, welcome. Joy, welcome. Hadassah Bauer, welcome. Glad you are here. Justice, watching in from West Africa. Welcome, sir. Glad you are here, Amy, Mighty Hover. Look at all these beautiful people. Mark Labine, shalom, sir. Watching from Michigan. Glad you are here. Dominique, again, there you are. I'm sorry, I saw your name twice, Dominique. Well, so, so shalom twice. There you go. Raphael, Jenea, welcome. Glad you're here. Regina from Mobile, Alabama. Regina, have you been here before? Your name looks uh, new to me, but maybe maybe I've just missed it in the past. Well, anyway, welcome. From Mobile, Alabama. What a beautiful place Mobile is. Love it, love it, love it. Elizabeth, glad you are here. Glad everyone is here. Estella, welcome. Rachel, Rachel, watching from uh, Tulsa. Glad you are here. Shimon Bauer, glad you're here, sir. All these precious souls. So glad everybody is here and doing well and being blessed. Baruch Hashem. We are in the uh, Parasha Kitisa, which has proven to be an amazing parasha. And we are finally caught up, I believe. Yes, we have. We have finally uh, caught up to the fifth aliyah. And so, which is going to begin in chapter 34 uh, on page 507 of the Chumash. And we'll begin reading in uh, chapter 1. We re re begin reading in chapter 1. Um... 
By the way, I just random. It's a random thought here before I start reading because I just read this on a, a Facebook post before I got online here, and uh, somebody I don't know who they are. Some some random Facebook person. Uh, their faith seems to be wavering uh, about the Mashiach. So naturally, I posted a couple of thoughts, posted a couple of a, a drosh, whatever. But um, the person said, you know, if you can prove from the Torah only, from the, from the I think they said Old Testament, Scripture, whatever, only uh, the, the Mashiach, uh, the, you know, J.C. is the Messiah, that would be helpful. Um, to which I replied, that's interesting because Judaism has never done that. Judaism has never proven the Messiah from the written Torah. It's always been, always, 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 always been from the oral Torah. In fact, this was the big argument of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the ones who said, look, if you read the written text, it says nothing about a Messiah, period, at all. And it doesn't, actually. If you believe in the Messiah, you have to believe in the oral Torah because that's where it's derived from. I know that you don't think that because when you read verses that you've read all your life, you say, look, that verse in Isaiah, look, that verse in Deuteronomy, look, that verse in Exodus, it clearly speaks to the Messiah. That's only because You've been trained to think that it does. But if you actually just read it on the Peshat level, it doesn't. So anyway, I'm just it's a random thought. It's free. You're welcome. Chapter 34, verse 1. Adonai said to Moses, Carve for yourself two stone tablets like the first one. And I shall inscribe on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you shattered. Now notice he says that I'm going to write the words on the second one like I wrote them on the first one. We're going to come back to that. Verse 2, Be prepared in the morning, ascend Mount Sinai in the morning, and stand by me. Stand by me. There on the mountaintop, no man may ascend with you, nor may anyone be seen on the entire mountain. Even the flock and the cattle may not graze face in the mountain. So, he carved out two stone tablets like the first one. Moshe arose early in the morning and ascended to Mount Sinai. As Adonai had commanded him, and he took two stone tablets in his hand, and Adonai descended in a cloud and stood with him there, and he called out in the name of Adonai. And Adonai passed before him and proclaimed, Adonai, Adonai, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in kindness and truth, preserver of kindness for thousands of generations, forgiver of iniquity and willful sin, error, and who cleanses, but does not cleanse completely, recalling the iniquity of parents upon the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moshe hastened to bow his head towards the ground and prostrate himself. And he said, If I have now found favor in your eyes, my Lord, let my Lord be among us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and you shall forgive our iniquity and our error and make us your heritage." The 13 attributes, <clears throat> pardon me, is what we find in our reading today. One of the most critical texts in the entire Torah. These 13 attributes are employed uh, at many points during our year for Yom Tovim, for, <clears throat> pardon me, for Teshuva, and as most especially during Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So I want to... Uh, begin. Let's see where we should go. There's so many wonderful insights. <coughs> Pardon me. I'm so sorry. I seem to have a frog in my throat all of a sudden. There we go. It says here, 
uh, in the Kehotumash about the renewal uh, of the covenant. So when we speak, well, let me let me say this. Uh, many people that you know, and maybe you yourself, well, certainly you yourself have thought this. I know I have, and, you know, decades past. And you have friends around you. When they think about the new covenant of the Mashiach, that the Mashiach made for us, <clears throat> they inevitably think that the Messiah came and he just completely nullified all of the Tanakh, uh, certainly all of the Law of Moses, maybe not the entire Tanakh, because we still have Proverbs and Tehillim in our little Gideon's Bible in, at the hotel. But he certainly got rid of, he just totally, totally got rid of, uh, of uh, most certainly all of Exodus, most certainly all of Leviticus, uh, all of Numbers, who even needs that book, and, uh, and, and the vast majority of Deuteronomy. He just, he just wiped it out, one fell swoop, um, and, and he completely uh, did away with it. He did away with all of God's laws. He, he completely nullified the will of God, and he replaced it with one commandment and one commandment only, which was love. Uh, and uh, hence we have the law of love and uh, multicolored flags that represent it. So it says here, though, when you're so when we look at the renewed covenant, we have to look at the renewed the covenant, the new covenant, I should say, from a Jewish point of view, because that's the only point of view that matters, right? So if we want to understand what it means to have a new covenant then we have to look at the Jewish idea of what a new covenant is. And, and the, the only place in the Tanakh where it explicitly states that there is going to be a new covenant is Jeremiah 31. And it says there that the covenant is going to be uh, what's going to make it new or different is that, it's, that those words are put on our heart. But really the first place we find a new covenant is in this text. It's in this parasha. And so the Kehot Humash says to 34.11. It kind of gives us an expanded version here. It says, in addition to replacing the tablets, I will renew, say renew, I will renew the covenant I made with you before the sin of the golden calf by repeating certain elements of it. Now notice it says repeating certain elements of it. Some people make the argument, well, you know, when, when in, in the, in the so-called New Testament, uh, certain, certain commandments aren't uh, explicitly reiterated. Well, that doesn't mean that they're nullified. It just means that God doesn't have to repeat himself. Once he's made a statement, it's made. As I've said countless times, but it's worth repeating here, is that um, if we suggest that God has to give us a completely new covenant after we've committed a violation of the current covenant, then what that does is instead of implying that we are the problem, it implies that God is the problem. See, if, we, if God gives us a law and we break it, and then God comes back and says, you know what, I'm going to forgive you, and then I'm going to change my law. What he's actually admitting to is that his law was the problem to begin with, not us. And that, of course, is wrong at best and blasphemous at worst. Why? 
Well, it's wrong at best because it takes the responsibility off of the sinner and on to the lawgiver. It's blasphemous because it suggests that God is somehow imperfect because he would have given us a law that was somehow the problem and therefore it would have been a mistake. Therefore, it was fallible, which would mean that the word of God is has shalom, fallible, which obviously can't be the case. The word of God has to be infallible, which means it's not the problem we are. So it says here, by repeating these commandments, I will make you doubly liable for infringing them. This will impress upon you the, their importance. So it goes on to say in the comments that God had already made a covenant with the people of Mount Sinai when he gave them the Torah. As has been recounted above at length, it says. Through this covenant, he and they were bound together as two halves of one whole, which, by the way, is why we give a half shekel coin. Why? Well, because we are one half shekel and God is the other half shekel. So it says, however, that covenant that was given to us was conditional upon the people's devotion to fulfilling God's will. Once they broke their promise to serve God faithfully, a new covenant or a renewed covenant, which would make the original covenant apply, even if the people were unfaithful, became necessary. So, from a Jewish point of view, a new covenant is a renewed covenant that causes the original covenant to apply even when we are unfaithful. So it says, in order to establish this type of covenant, God had to reveal a much deeper level of his connection to the people, a level at which their success in obeying the commandment is irrelevant. In other words, God had to take us to a whole other level where even if we fail to keep the covenant, even when we are unfaithful, he is still faithful. So it says, only in this way would the divine presence be able to dwell among them and accompany them as Moses had said. So again, this is uh, teaching us a very valuable lesson that a new covenant does not mean a uh, an abrogation of God's will. What it means is that God is renewing the covenant to us to the degree that he's going to be able to dwell among us even if and when we are unfaithful in that regard. So it says, um, another insight here, just along these same lines, comes from Rabbi Monk. And he, re- he writes this. <coughs> Pardon me. Sorry, I'm a little frog in the proverbial throat here. It says, Rabbi Hirsch, however, raises a question as to why the second tablets were given immediately after the people were pardoned without any time for rehabilitation. It says, he ex- now this brings to mind the fact that Yeshua was crucified for us. The tablets were broken. He was broken. And then nearly immediately after we were forgiven, he was resurrected. So those, those new tablets were given again. Why was there not any time given for rehabilitation? Rabbi Hirsch says he explains that in order, or excuse me, he explains that in other societies, 
a revolt similar to Israel's worship of the golden calf would have had a different outcome. Every government pays close attention, it says here, to the reactions of its people, even when it re resorts to force to quell an outbreak and the sentiments revealed by the people are not ignored. Public reaction must be considered in changing the laws to prevent further outbreaks. So normally, even in a totalitarian society, very often laws are changed so that the people won't have these outbreaks. This was true even in Israel, in ancient Israel, even under the authoritarian government of the, of the Romans. The Romans very often um, changed their laws or... Uh, lifted certain restrictions so that it would quell rebellion and revolt. In other words, they changed their laws to establish peace in Israel, as an example. So it says, this is not so with the Jewish nation, however. No error, transgression, or rebellion can change the basic form and spirit of divine law. This is so critical. Our rebellion, or even our supposed inability to keep the law, which really isn't true, I, even that would not necessitate a change in the divine law. Why? Because the law is, say it with me, divine. The reason that man-made laws can change in order to make the people feel better is because it's man-made laws. So it says, Hashem does not modify his plan to accommodate our weakness. Hashem does not com uh, change his law to accommodate our weakness. My friends, this is so important because this is, what I just said is the foundation. It's the very core, the very foundation of the false theologies of Christianity. The foundation of the false theology of Christianity is that because we're so weak and because we're not able to keep the law of God, God nullified his law. Now, I've already explained why that's so wrong. I've already explained why that is such blasphemy. But here we have to understand that God doesn't do that. He doesn't change his law because of our weakness. So it says, thus, immediately after the people were pardoned, the divine law was reinstated precisely as it was before, as it says here, and I shall inscribe on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets. Whatever they do, the Israelites must forever face their task, a task ever holy, a task defined once and for all time. For instance, you know, when we, um, when we make teshuva, the whole point of making teshuva, the whole reason we're doing it is that, you know, we we got off the path, we made a mistake, we made an error, uh, we regret it, we, um, uh, we, we, we distance ourselves from whatever it was that was causing the problem to begin with, and we confess it, verbalize it, and then we resolve not to commit that error again. All of that presumes that the path that we left initially, is still there. Imagine if you're trying to make teshuva, but once you make teshuva, God says, you know, 
you know, um, actually, the reason they got messed up is because that law was just, it just didn't work for them. They're just weak. So I'm going to change the law. So therefore, I'm going to remove the path entirely. Uh, and I'm going to make the path over here. So now you and I are trying to make teshuva and go back to the path that we left. But wait a minute. Uh-oh, the path isn't there anymore. Now we've got to rediscover where the path is. And oh, wait a minute. The path that it's no longer there now is a new path. That new path actually allows me to go ahead and sin, which begs the question, why was I making teshuva to begin with? Once again, our very common theologies, uh, when brought into the light of critical thinking and common sense, uh, are proven to be completely nonsensical, which is why there's so much confusion in the theological world. Another insight from the Kehot Humash is that the shattered tablets actually opened the way. So it says here, on a deeper level, just talking about when, when uh, Moshe um, uh, Briella, I'm sorry, I just happened to look up and saw this comment from Briella about um, the Jewish people worshipped Asherah gods. I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, that's whatever it is that you read somewhere online is completely false. The Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is the Shekinah of God. So, uh, stay cool, stay off YouTube. It says, uh, or Rabbi Google, I should say. On a deeper level, God commanded Moses for, commended, Slika, commended Moses for shattering the, the tablets because by doing so, their metaphysical effect on reality was ended. God told Moses that the people had lost the second innocence. That's a theolo an important theological uh, point. Um, the second innocence. Uh, Adam lost the first innocence, and the Jewish people were now given the opportunity to make teshuva for Adam. Whereas Adam, um, uh, you know, was supposed to redeem Eve, and he failed. Now the onus was on the Jewish people to redeem the world and they failed. So this is the second innocence that was lost, which now sets it up that now it requires Mashiach. As I've said before, there's a very popular and common idea in relative modern Judaism that the Messiah is going to be just a man. And I spoke about this at length in previous Aliyahs this week, that that is, uh, again, just completely nonsensical because here we have Moses who there is no man greater than Moses. There will be no man ever that was greater than Moses, and yet he couldn't do it. So, so now we're, we're waiting on some other man to show up who is, who by all Jewish standards, we already know he's going to be lesser than Moses um, to somehow now take us into the... Uh, yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah. So it says here, he had granted them... the. At the giving of the Torah, uh, this innocence, and Moses understood then that the people had to become penitents. As was mentioned above, the original tablets ensured that the people would not forget any of the Torah they learned, so that by breaking them, 
Moses ensured that the people would have to exert themselves to retain what they had learned, and this exertion is an essential facet of the lifestyle of the penitent. What does this mean? It means that somebody who's a penitent, which really is me and you, you and I, us, we have to work at being penitent. And it's not easy. Very often, I don't know about you. I can't speak for you. I can only speak for me. But sometimes I feel like I take one step forward and two steps back and trying to be the person that, you know, God calls us to be. In other words, we have to press in. This is why the Aliyah Day exists, to refurbish and re renew and rejuvenate our souls, that we can be faithful people, that we can be people of integrity, that we can be people that are true to our beliefs and practice what we preach and all those kinds of things. It takes a lot of effort uh, to, to sustain the renewal. It's not, it's not easy, but it's not meant to be easy. Anything that's easy is not valued. This is why the grace message is, is, um, is what it is, because anything that's easy has no value. You and I, you know that. Think about you ladies out there. Not to pick on ladies, but it's costume jewelry is very common amongst uh, females, far more common Amongst females than amongst males. Um, so imagine you ladies that you have costume jewelry, right? And, um, you know, you have it laying around. Maybe it's around your vanity uh, table or whatever. You have it hanging on the little uh, little necklace rack things, the little black velvet things. And they're, they're out there in plain view, right? But if you have actually uh, like a real pearl necklace or maybe a real uh, emerald uh, em uh, medallion or something like that or, or, or something of diamonds, typically those are held a little bit closer to the proverbial vest. Maybe, maybe you put those in a more secure location, perhaps a safe or something like that. You treat those differently. Why? Because they have value. They have value. You've, you've, uh, either they were a gift or you yourself uh, purchased them. Either way, you had to work harder to acquire the money necessary to buy those things. Right? And uh, us guys have our own uh, jewelry, like uh, Glocks and AK-47s. It's just different. We don't wear them around our neck, although I kind of do wear my AK around my neck just in a different way. So, anyway, um, uh, God commanded Moses for opening the path of repentance to the people since this was God's intention in forcing the incident of the golden calf on the people as mentioned above. It's very interesting, this, this idea of opening the way. So, what is the way? The way, like God, Yeshua said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The way is the way to Teshuvah. The way is, is the way of the, the, the pathway back to Hashem. And isn't it interesting that God is saying, look, at first I had all the people here. They were all perfect. They were all holy. They were all, you know, <clears throat> completely on board. And now I have forced them or I've orchestrated the events, um, as we, we talked about in the, in the first and second Aliyah this week, of bringing about the incident of the golden calf because God found it necessary to open the way of, the, of, of repentance 
Ultimately, why? Because he realized the whole world would need repentance, so he needed to make that happen. So therefore, by shattering the tablets in full view of the entire people, Moses made the path of repentance available, it says here, even to those who had not participated in the sin. He made that pathway available. Now, a couple more insights in the time that we have remaining here. Both of these are from the Cahill Tumash. So it says here that God gave him the, the tablets. It says, God finished teaching Moses and gave him the tablets on the 40th day of his stay on the mountain. But, as, we, as it says here, we see that people had already made the golden calf on the 39th day. In other words, even after the people committed this most heinous sin... God continued to teach Moses the Torah and gave him the tablets in order that he transmit them to the people. So the lesson here is that we must always relate to people in their best light. Our weakness and our failure or somebody else's weakness and failures uh, don't define us and don't define them. And God, listen, God knows everything. He sees that the people are down there dancing around the golden calf, and he continues to teach Moses the Torah and says, okay, this is what you're going to tell the people. This is how you're going to relate to them. This is what you need to tell them to follow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it says here, inviting, he, God invites and encourages everyone to learn Torah and fulfill his commandments, even if they don't presently seem worthy of doing so. It's just more illustration of God's grace and how we need to have grace for people who, and for ourselves, right? We often talk about having grace for other people. We also need to have grace for ourselves and understand that uh, we do a lot of things right. You do a lot of things right, and you may struggle in certain areas, whether it's observance or some other challenge or whatever that is, that does not negate your whole existence as a faithful person of God. Those areas need to be worked upon and, and they need to be improved and to shuva needs to be made. That's no doubt. That's the message being applied here. One final thing. I'm a little bit over on time, but one final thing. It says he gave him two tablets. So it says here, the sages tell us that the verb here to give indicates that God gave the Torah to the Jewish people as a gift this means that through our study and observance of the Torah, we are able to elicit revelations of divine beneficence and consciousness far beyond what we could naturally elicit through our own spiritual merits. In other words, the giving of the Torah, the Torah itself, was God's divine gift to us. End of our Aliyah today. Thank you so much for joining me. Everybody stay healthy um, and uh, be blessed. Be full of uh, the Ruach HaKodesh. May it be God's will that we will join together tomorrow for the 6th and 7th Aliyah. Pray for our country. Pray for our nation. That Hashem should protect us. Uh, and not just for our nation. There's a lot of Lepidniks across the world. So we want to pray for Lepidniks everywhere to uh, be safe from any virus, any sickness, any disease. Let's use common sense. Let's not panic. Um, but let's use common sense to protect ourselves from any danger. And may God cover us in the shadow of his tent. Amen. Amen. Shalom, shalom. We'll see everybody tomorrow. Be blessed.